Well, it would be good for you to have um, that passage from Luke chapter 5 open as we uh, work our way through it this morning and as we uh, seek to open up God's Word. Um, we are going through a series of uh, sermons in, in the mornings uh, interspersed between Peter uh, doing a series on Joshua. Uh, some of us are doing a series on encounters with Jesus, and uh, that's where we are today, an encounter with Jesus. Now, the four books of the Bible that we call the Gospels are uniquely written. Uh, they cover the same period of time. They cover the, the life, the death, the, the resurrection of Jesus. But they're written from four different perspectives. They're written in four different ways. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, which is widely uh, attributed to, to Matthew, uh, the disciple, uh, otherwise known as Levi, the tax collector, uh, who was one of the twelve disciples called by Jesus. Uh, Matthew, uh, his focus in, in writing his gospel, uh, broadly speaking, is to show that Jesus is the continuation and the fulfillment of the whole biblical story of God and the people of Israel. Uh, the gospel of Mark, which is written or attributed to the gospel worker John Mark, who was a, a friend of um, Paul and also Peter, um, the early church historian Papias recalls that, that Mark um, collected all of Peter's eyewitness accounts and memories and shaped them into the gospel bearing his name. And again, broadly speaking, uh, the gospel of, of Mark um, offers a three-act narrative within it. So in the first eight chapters, um, Mark asks the question of who is Jesus? Um, and we see his early life and his, his ministry in Galilee. The third act um, is set in Jerusalem in chapters 11 to 16 and establishes that Jesus is king. And the second act between chapters 9 and 11 covers the journey from from Galilee to Jerusalem and deals with the disciples and and their unbelief at times. The Gospel of John uh, is written by the disciple whom Jesus loved uh, and focuses powerfully on new life and rebirth, and it can be summarized as a gospel uh, in chapter 20, verse 31 at the end of the gospel. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Well, what about the gospel of Luke? That's where we are this uh, morning. What is the context? What is the, the viewpoint from Luke? Well, it was written as part of a two act volume. Um, along with the book of Acts, uh, and written by uh, Luke the doctor. And Luke makes his aim abundantly clear in the first few verses of his gospel, where we read, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. So Luke's concern was to gather uh, as many different first-hand eyewitness accounts and views as he could in order to compile a detailed and a thorough and an accurate account of the life of Jesus. And his concern was that we, the readers of his gospel, might know that this Jesus of Nazareth is both Christ and Lord. 
And so he gives a thorough and an ordered uh, and an extensive account of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Uh, Luke also records and demonstrates many examples of Jesus' power and authority over people, over nature, over demons. Luke proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does all these things in great detail, with great accuracy, so that we might know Jesus as the Son of God. That we might know that he is the Saviour of the world. And even more than that, Luke writes to convince us that when we encounter him, when we encounter this Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus who is Christ and Lord, we should follow him. We should follow him as our shepherd. We should follow him as the bread of life. We should follow him as our Lord and Saviour. And so as we read this morning of a particular encounter with Jesus, um, and we read of an encounter that happened 2,000 and odd years ago, we would be wise to consider how we would respond to an encounter with Jesus. Will we choose to follow him? And if we choose to follow him, what does that mean? Well, um, one of the ways in which Luke seeks to encourage us um, is to, to follow Jesus is by presenting to us uh, the stories and the lives of those first people who were involved in Jesus' ministry. Uh, the first people whose lives were changed in an irreversible manner by encountering the Son of God. The first people who chose and were compelled to choose to follow Jesus. And so our text this morning tells us the story of Jesus calling the first disciples. And we can learn three things from this encounter. Firstly, it all begins with listening. It all begins with listening. Uh, now, lots of you will know that I'm a, a teacher uh, by trade, a primary school teacher, and one of the uh, favourite phrases in my class is there is a difference between hearing and listening. We can hear something without taking it in. We can hear something without considering what it means. To listen requires our attention. It requires us to respond. In those days, Jesus' reputation uh, had been growing throughout the area and the region of Galilee. And we read at the start of chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put it out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Well, Genesaret was another name for Galilee. Um, and it's uh, a name which isn't used uh, uh, many other times. Uh, but it, it shows us that this is part of Jesus' early ministry in the area of Galilee. Um, a huge crowd had gathered together. And it wasn't just uh, a crowd that had gathered out of curiosity, um, although I'm sure there were some who were curious. 
It wasn't just to see a, a local celebrity, although perhaps some had heard of uh, the fame of Jesus and were intrigued by that. Luke records their purpose explicitly. The crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. The crowd was there en masse to receive exactly what Jesus came to give. The word of God. But such was the desire to listen to Jesus, there wasn't room to be found. And so Jesus sought a solution to the, to the problem at hand. Uh, he commandeers one of the fishing boats, uh, currently not in use, and sets out a little onto the Sea of Galilee uh, to sit down to teach. Well, why does Jesus do that? Why doesn't he just reconvene the crowd at a more suitable time? Why doesn't he just say, everyone, there's, there's no space here. Um, perhaps we could organize several meetings at a, another time, or we can reconvene in a place which can, can fit us all in. Ought he not to preach in a more suitable location? Well, the reason that Jesus takes to the sea and preaches from his fishing boat pulpit is very simple. There were souls waiting to be fed. There was no time to postpone the meeting for a more suitable location. There was no time to postpone the meeting so that they could be uh, fit together in, in a suitable building. There were souls waiting to be fed. There were disciples waiting to believe and turn and follow the Son of God. And by disciples, I don't mean specifically those 12 men known as the 12 disciples. Because a disciple is anyone who listens to the words of Jesus and obeys. And so a great throng of souls met together and encountered Jesus at the edge of the Sea of Galilee to hear and listen to the word of God being proclaimed. But in the midst of such an event, in the midst of a great throng of people gathering to hear, even as the crowds pressed in out of eagerness to hear the word of God being proclaimed, Jesus speaks intentionally and specifically to one individual, to the owner of the boat, a fisherman by the name of Simon Peter. You see, Simon Peter needed to listen to Jesus. He'd heard Jesus. He'd met Jesus previously. He'd welcomed him into his own home. He'd witnessed firsthand uh, Jesus' miraculous healing power. But Simon Peter needed to listen and understand for himself. He needed to believe in his heart and he needed to obey. So this whole encounter starts with Simon Peter, or, or Peter as he would become, listening to Jesus. There can be no doubt that um, Peter's presence that day uh, was, was any form of accident. It was no coincidence that his uh, night of fishing had ended at a time uh, as Jesus arrived at the Sea of Galilee and that the crowds drew together. He was exactly where he needed to be, where he needed to be to listen and encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, the preacher and hymn writer uh, William Vernon Hyam wrote these sweet words that we often sing here in Kasalem. Have you heard the voice of Jesus softly pleading with your heart? Have you felt his presence glorious as he calls your soul apart? With a love so true and loyal, love divine that ever flows from a saviour righteous, royal, and a crown that mercy shows. Peter needed to have that encounter with Jesus. He'd heard Jesus, he'd met Jesus, he knew of Jesus. He needed to hear the voice of Jesus softly pleading with his heart. And so he listens from his boat. Peter's heart was beginning to open up and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Jesus commands him further, verse 4, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch, we see Peter's response. And that's our second lesson from this passage. Firstly, it was all about listening. Secondly, it's all about repentance. What a strange request it must have seemed to Peter. Uh, A carpenter, remember that was Jesus' profession, a carpenter instructing a fisherman on how and where to fish. Now, I've only ever known a few fishermen in my life, but I have watched a lot of The Deadliest Catch, so I feel very comfortable in saying uh, that most fishermen take their job very seriously. They take their jobs and their roles incredibly seriously. It's a profession of hard physical work. It's a, a job of braving the elements. It's a job where there are rare days of, of wonderful catches, often outweighed by days of disappointment. I wouldn't dare tell a fisherman how to go about their business. And so, in a sense, we can understand Simon Peter's initial skepticism. But as we see in this passage, this was never, ever about fish. Verse 5, and Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. There's an element of skepticism there. But at your word, I will let down the nets. You see, as fishermen, they would have labored throughout the night. Uh, That is the time that fishermen go out to fish. Most fish generally um, uh, stay away from um, uh, the, um, the surface during the daylight, uh, swim deeper. And so it's, just, it's during the evening, it's during the night time when they spend more time towards the surface so that fishermen can go and collect their hauls. No doubt Peter and his, his fellow fishermen were, were disappointed. They'd been out all night, they were dejected, they'd been working hard and they'd had no success. Um, they'd only just finished their labours. We, we saw in verse 2, uh, we read... The fishermen had gone out uh, of them and were washing their nets. So perhaps as Jesus was speaking, they were going through that process at the end of a fishing um, uh, trip where they were uh, just repairing the nets and, and laying them out to dry, getting them ready for the next day. The last thing they would have intended was to go straight back out and to fish. And in Peter's response, we see something quite remarkable. Because even if he was a little reluctant, even if he sort of answered with an element of skepticism, even if he was slightly annoyed at what Jesus was saying, Peter still obeyed. If Peter had not obeyed, there would not have been a catch. 
Jesus could have made the, the fish jump into the boat if he, if he so wanted, to demonstrate his power and authority. But he doesn't often act in this way. Jesus calls us to be his instruments in his work. And he gives us Peter as an example. Now, uh, Peter is not a perfect example as we see throughout his life. But he is a good one. Isn't it encouraging to us that Jesus doesn't turn around and and reject Peter uh, after his initial cynicism? But rather he accepts his his half-hearted obedience and performs the miracle anyway. The Lord Jesus Christ, in, in his mercy and his grace, elects to use this fisherman for his glory's sake. Well, what is the immediate response of Peter's obedience? Verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. Now, the passage covers uh, the narrative very quickly here, but just imagine the scene. It would have been an incredibly tense situation. When the uh, fishermen pulled in their nets, such was the haul, despite it being the middle of the day, Their nets were breaking. Now, don't be tempted to think that, um, you know, because you've been crabbing or uh, rock pooling and you've seen a a net get tangled and, and, and begin to break, that it was like that. No, these would have been large boats, 20 to 30 feet long. Their nets would have been huge. And as they began to pull in their haul, the weight of the fish would have started to sink the ship. Imagine the strains on the nets, the creaking sound of the boats, the immediate joy of the catch in the fishermen's eyes turning to panic and horror as they realised that they were in a dangerous situation. And so, verse 6, they signalled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. This was the catch of a fisherman's lifetime. It was a sort of catch that would have been spoken about in whispers and hushed tones, in song and in merriment throughout every single harbour and port and tavern throughout Galilee. But it was never about the fish. It was a miracle. Jesus was demonstrating his power and his authority over all creation. And he was doing it specifically for Peter and his friends. It was an abundance of fish, the hall of all halls. It was a never in any way, though, about the fish that were taken out of that sea. The key to what Jesus is doing here is showing us that the seeds of obedience is a sign of repentance. It, it, um, Peter may have only briefly shown obedience. It may have, may have been clouded with a sense of cynicism, But by showing his obedience, Peter was showing that his heart was beginning to repent. By the power of his word, Jesus performed this miracle. By the power of his word, Jesus instructed Peter to lower their nets. And by the power of his word, Jesus forced Peter to reconcile something important within himself. Verse 8 9 and 10. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. In the midst of this incredible miracle, in the midst of this unbelievable sight, Peter's response was one of humble repentance. He's not whooping and hollering on the deck of his ship at this incredible hall. He's not seeking to lord it over all the other fishermen uh, on the banks watching. His immediate response is one of repentance. Peter realises that he is unworthy of being in the presence of this man Jesus, who he had seen before, he'd heard before, he'd admired before, and now he was seeing for who he really was. Well, what was it that caused Peter to repent at this particular moment? He'd, he'd heard Jesus proclaim God's word before. He'd spent time with Jesus. He'd witnessed Jesus' miracles. What was it about this act on the Sea of Galilee that caused uh, Peter to understand the reality of his need for repentance? Well, the consensus amongst uh, most commentators on this passage is that the miracle spoke to Peter's specific need. He was moved by seeing that Jesus had power over the very thing that he saw, saw, uh, saw himself as an expert in. Fishing was his, his life. He understood the sea, he understood the ways of the fish. And yet despite his expertise, the Lord Jesus Christ miraculously, um, miraculously did something that he thought impossible. The miracle that he observed flew fast in the face of all that he knew. As far as he was concerned, it was impossible to catch fish, fish in the Sea of Galilee at such a time. And yet, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had power and authority over the waves and the sea. What was impossible to Peter was possible for the Son of God. But there's more than that. that. That is a good view of this passage. It is a good view of this encounter as to why, in this particular moment, Peter was struck by his need to repent. But there is more than that. Because in verse 8, we see a small but vital change in Peter. It's so small that perhaps you didn't consider it. Um, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, and it's the sort of thing that, when you read a passage like this, you, you sort of move past. In verse 5, we read this. And Simon answered, Master. He refers to him as his master. It's a sign of great respect. It's a sign of authority. Look at how he responds in verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Is that just a case of semantics? Is it interchangeable titles that Peter would happily use? No, it's, it's more than that. It's far more than that. It signals something powerful happening in Peter's life. You see, in calling Jesus master, Peter was being respectful. He was acknowledging Jesus' authority to teach. In calling Jesus Lord, Peter was acknowledging Jesus' sovereign power and authority. 
He was acknowledging his kingship. Well, the great theologian and and pastor William Hendrickson uh, remarks on this. He says, Peter stands in awe of his master and confesses him to be his Lord. Astonishment and fear had seized him, and not only him, but also his men. Peter knew in his heart that his master was at the same time his Lord and truly worthy of worship and adoration. You see the difference? As his master, he was worthy of admiration. He was worthy of his respect. As Lord, he was worthy of worship. And there is all the world's difference in those two terms because it points to Peter's change in his heart. In a, nuts, in a nutshell, he saw Jesus in that moment for who he really is. And Peter saw himself for who he really was. Jesus was not just a wise teacher. Uh, Peter was not just a, a simple but honest fisherman. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Lord of heaven. And this man, Peter, was a wretched sinner. And this is a great turning point in Peter's life. Not because of a record haul. Not because of a tale that would go down in fishing legend. But the day in which, in the middle of his boat, he was compelled to his knees, confessed his sinfulness, and turned in worship to Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, we've seen that this passage uh, demonstrates to us that it requires listening, it requires repentance, well, thirdly and finally, it requires obedience. Now, when Peter saw his own sin, his first instinct was to hide away. We read in verse 8, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What a classic response from Peter. What a classic response from the man as we get to know him throughout the Gospels and throughout the book of Acts and throughout his letters. If you know anything of this man as he's revealed in Scripture, you'll know that he was always quick to an emotional response. He was the type of man who always shot from the hip, uh, jumps to the wrong conclusion, comes out with a passionate response. It's not hard to have affinity with the Apostle Peter in that respect. The dear man who loved the Lord Jesus Christ with all his heart and yet was prone to the afflictions of sin. A man who was called by Jesus, who was set apart for his service, but who too often let his inner man emerge and let his saviour down. Can't we often feel the same way as Peter? Can't we often feel in our service of the kingdom that we too often let ourselves down, that we let our saviour down. When we consider our sinfulness, when we consider the wickedness of our ways, can't we be tempted to flee? Think of those words from Psalm 139. You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Peter, in this moment, understood these words. As he sat there on his ship, he was understanding what it meant that the Lord God knew all about him, who knew his heart. So he could say with David these words, before a word is on my tongue, you Lord know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. In this moment, Peter felt that the best thing he could possibly do was to run away. That how could he possibly stand in the presence of his Saviour? How could he possibly stand in the presence of his Lord? We too can feel guilty about that. When we reflect on our hearts and we consider our sins, perhaps this morning you're sat here feeling that way. Perhaps you're you're sat in, in your pew and you've been struck by the words of Jesus, you've been struck by this encounter and you feel the weight of sin. Perhaps you are thinking even now that you're too guilty to be in his presence, too guilty to be forgiven, too guilty to be redeemed, too guilty to be made righteous before God. Well, if that's the case for you as you sit here uh, this morning, then know this. That is exactly why Jesus came. That is exactly why Jesus came. He came to this earth to minister and to live, and to be crucified, and to be resurrected, so that he can bring us close to God. So that he can be our redeemer. So that he can be our advocate. He can be our reconciliation and our righteousness. That is the wonder and the glory of saving grace. It is entirely of him and nothing of us. It was God who chose Abraham. It was God who chose Abraham and made a covenant with him. It was God who chose Jacob the deceiver, despite all his faults over his brother Esau. It was God who chose Moses to lead his people out of the darkness of Egypt into the promised land. And it was God who, before the very beginning of time, chose to have a saving encounter With this fisherman, Peter. But this encounter goes a little further still. Verse 10 Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. What an encouragement for Peter to hear these words. Despite everything you are, Peter, I want you for my service. Peter's sin didn't disqualify him from serving the Lord. In fact, Peter had a, sorry, Jesus had a particular and a wonderful role in mind uh, for Peter. He was to become a fisher of men. Peter was called by Jesus to be obedient despite his sinfulness. And he received a new calling and a new direction in his life. And there's something small but important to notice in, in the text here. When we read the word that we translate as catching, uh, the word zogron, it's actually a a participle. And it indicates and implies a continuous work. Something continuously happening. And it's a word which is formed by combining uh, the verb agreo with the word for life, zoon. And it can therefore be more accurately rendered as this. From now on, Peter, you will be catching men Alive. And so it conveys the idea not so much of catching, 
but rather rescuing. Rescuing from danger in order to give life. And think about that for a second. How contrary that is to the fishermen. How contrary it is for their experience to be a fisher of fish. When a fisherman catches fish, they're doing so with the sole intention of ending that fish's life so that they can eat it or sell it. Jesus is saying to Peter, formerly you were a fisherman. You fished fish. Now you will catch people so that they might live. And this was the role that despite his sinfulness, despite his hot-headedness, despite his propensity for failure at times, Peter excelled at. He excelled at proclaiming the gospel of repentance and faith. He cast his gospel net far and wide. And in Luke's companion book, the, the book of Acts, we read of one occasion of Peter casting his net in Jerusalem uh, to the hall of 3,000 new believers. The bulging nets of fish were turned into bulging nets of believers because of Peter's obedience and because of his saving encounter with Jesus. Well, finally, let's apply some of these things to our lives, shall we? Um, And we'll do so briefly in two ways. What does this passage reveal to us about God? What does this tell us about the God of creation uh, whose word this is? Well, firstly, God actively and purposefully chooses to reveal himself through his word. The backdrop to this entire encounter is Jesus preaching the word of God and the people gathering to listen. And God reveals himself in it in a number of ways, through his law, through creation, uh, through communal worship as we meet together. But it is through the word preached and proclaimed that God so chooses to reveal himself in a saving manner. There is a mysterious and a glorious power to God's word being preached. It meets the heart needs of those who listen. And it causes repentance and obedience and faith. The second thing that we see revealed to us about God here is this. God is sovereign over all creation. It was no accident that Peter found himself at the Sea of Galilee at this time. It wasn't just fortuitous timing that in Jesus' ministry he was able to encounter and call his first disciples. It wasn't by luck that it happened to be Peter there on that day. The triune God of all creation, Father, Son and Holy Spirit is sovereign. He reigns over all as our eternal king. And as we consider these encounters over the next few months, as we consider the ways in which Jesus, during his earthly minister, met and encountered different people, it's vital that we understand them for what they are. The actions of a God who is purposeful. A God who knows all things and uses all things for his glory's sake. A God who is wise in all of his decisions. A God who chooses to encounter Peter, who chooses to save Peter, and chooses to call Peter to serve him. Thirdly, uh, an application of, of what this tells us about God. God's mercy knows no end. In Peter's moment of doubt, Jesus could easily have turned away, couldn't he? And Maybe that might be our reaction when somebody offers a moment of cynicism and, and doubt towards us. To turn away and, 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 and perhaps Jesus could have stopped Peter right there 
and called somebody else to be a disciple. But God is a merciful God. He saves his people and he calls us to follow him despite our sinfulness. Despite the ways in which we fail fail him. And Peter failed in many ways throughout his life. And so as we read this encounter, as we ponder and we meditate on these words, let us be assured that we have a merciful God who deals with us in tenderness. If you've ever felt that you don't deserve God's mercy, you don't deserve God's kindness, and you don't deserve God's grace, you are right. And yet you can be comforted by this. The God who provides it uh, does so to those who are contrite and broken of heart anyway. We don't deserve a single thing, and yet he provides all that we need. Well, finally, how can we apply this passage to our own lives? How should we respond as believers here in St. Melons in, in 2021, as non-believers sat here, maybe not knowing what it means to have a relationship with God, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, do we as a church here in St. Melons delight in listening to the word of God? Not just appreciate it or appreciate the value of a well-constructed sermon, Not just value the preached word out of a sense of respect because it's in a church and that's what we should do. Do we hunger to hear God's word? Think about how this this whole passage started. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Are you pressing to hear God's word? Are you coming Sunday by Sunday with a heart prepared to be fed? A heart that desires to know and understand more of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you come expecting to encounter Jesus? As a church, we're in the midst of calling a new pastor and there are many aspects that, that it's right for us to consider. Um, we most certainly ought to encourage and pray for our elders as they lead that process. There's many things for the elders to, to take into consideration. But the most vital is this. Does a pastor... Feed the flock. Does a pastor wrestle and labor with the word? Because the preached word of God is the primary means by which God encounters lost souls. And whoever the man is that is called to this place and this pulpit needs to be an under-shepherd who delights in God's word and is able to preach with power and authority for the good of the flock. Finally and briefly now. Will you respond like Peter? Will you respond like Peter? The man who failed so many times, who responded with haste and impatience at times, man who rejected Jesus by the cross, and yet whom Jesus called and dearly loved and appointed. And a man who in turn, despite all his faults, dearly loved his saviour. If you're a Christian here this morning, will you respond like Peter? Will you be obedient to the Lord? Will you serve him day by day as a fisher of men in whatever way and whatever capacity the Lord has placed you? Would you cast your net in the places which you work and amongst your family and your friends? Would you proclaim the saving love of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you're an unbeliever here this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't had your life irreversibly changed by an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Will you recognize him as Lord and Savior? Master's not good enough. He is our master. But more than that, he is our Lord and Savior. Will you see yourself as a sinner in need of his merciful grace? And understand that now is the time to repent in obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can be challenged and encouraged by reading this passage this morning. We thank you, Lord God, that in in being under your word, we have had an encounter with our risen Savior this morning. And Lord God, we pray that we would not leave this, this place without wrestling in our hearts as to how we should respond. Lord God, I pray for anybody here this morning who does not know what it, what it means to be saved by grace, that they would not leave this place without considering their greatest need to be forgiven for their sins and granted a new heart and a new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for all these things in his name alone. Amen.